Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As usual, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from last week, a couple of quick headlines, and a forecast for the week ahead. Then it's time for the fourth and final installment of March's Drug of the Month, where I'll talk about some recent trends in phencyclidine, also known as PCP. Then we'll be talking about youth drug education with Dr. Vilmarie Narlock, a clinical psychologist. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if you're not then turning that knowledge into action. So thanks for joining us for episode 37 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. So now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we're going to be talking about some of the most exciting things that happened last week and giving you a little bit of a heads up about some things that are coming up in the coming months. So, Rochelle, do you want to start us off with our first story? Absolutely, Sam. So this week, an interview with a former Nixon aide, John Ehrlichman, who was President Richard Nixon's chief domestic officer at the time, revealed that what we in the drug policy reform movement have known for a long time now, that the war on drugs was specifically conceived to criminalize black people. And here's the quote um, that has been causing so much controversy and uh, confirms that suspicion. Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So in other words, racial disparities in drug arrests and convictions wasn't just an unfortunate side effect of the war on drugs, but it was the whole point. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is such a, I mean, it was shocking to so many people, but an interesting thing with this is that this was actually, this has been in circulation for a while, but has now just kind of resurfaced because of this new Harper's report. Because I think, yeah, this quote was from all the way back in 1994. Uh, But it's awesome that this is resurging with... uh, coming along with things like the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is making this more part of the public consciousness about the war on drugs and then being able to point back to this old evidence of, Mm. hey, remember when, you know, this was said in the 90s and maybe a lot of people thought it was conspiracy theories and now that we've been seeing the effects of the war on drugs even more and thinking about it from a a broader context and in a historical way, we see, oh, no, this actually makes a lot of sense and... uh, as you said, it's not. It wasn't the a side effect. It was the entire point of the war on drugs. The purpose, right? And I think 
I think it is important that it's recirculating now at a time when we're talking about a lot more drastic um, mm-hmm. drug policy reform than just legalization mm-hmm. of marijuana. Um, I think the focus for a very long time has been about how uh, marijuana was stigmatized and demonized by its association with black people. Um, and those transcripts from uh, the congressional hearings that initially initially criminalized marijuana are mm-hmm. public also. That's not that's right. not any secret knowledge. Um, so I think it's good that it's back in the public conscious consciousness, but it does make me wonder like how much is this how much weight does this really carry when we're talking to legislators and uh, policymakers and how much this will actually influence what they do? Because if we've had this evidence for so long and we've been making these arguments mm-hmm. for years, if not decades, um, will it really change anyone's mind that it's been stated so bluntly in this case? Yeah. And, and as we've discussed before, the really sad reality of this is that we were only seeing these pushes for decriminalization, for safe injection, stuff like that, now that white people are starting to be recognized as the stereotypical heroin user. Um, And it's not because of, hey, we've realized that these policies are racist or that we, um, you know, that the intent of them was uh, to target black people. It's that oh, this law that was created in order to target black people is now being used to hurt white people, so now we should change it. Right. Which is, right. I mean, it's good if we change it, but it's still obviously not for the right reasons. Right, and I think it makes it uh, so much more important that we acknowledge the racist roots of the war on drugs and continue mm-hmm. fighting uh, for for justice overall, not just ending this one tool of racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully this will continue to uh, to chip away at the war on drugs and just add to the pile of evidence that we have uh, for for actually repealing it. And so uh, moving on to our next story, another exciting uh, thing to pile on to our uh, huge mountain of evidence is that a group of 22 top medical experts from John Hopkins University and The Lancet, which is a really big medical journal, uh, together in a group called the Commission on Public Health and International Drug Policy, has come out with a report endorsing really, really major changes in drug policy, uh, including Portugal-style decriminalization of all drugs. So in their 44-page report, which we will have a direct link to on our website, the commission writes that policies criminalizing drugs, and this is a direct quote, directly and indirectly contribute to lethal violence, disease, discrimination, forced displacement, injustice, and the undermining of people's right to health, end quote. Uh, And then they go on to cite specific instances like the rampant violence in Mexico that's killed tens of thousands of people and even lowered the country's life expectancy, uh, HIV and hepatitis C transmission due to sharing needles, and racial disparities and incarceration, among many, many other uh, issues. And so in case that wasn't great enough, they actually even took this a few steps further and even endorsed the outright legalization of drugs, uh, writing, and here's another direct quote, Although regulated legal drug markets are not politically possible in the short term in some places, the harms of criminal markets and other consequences of prohibition cataloged in this commission will probably lead more countries and more U.S. states to move gradually in that direction, a direction we endorse, end quote. So this is really huge. Uh, So just what are your your initial thoughts, Rochelle? Um, I think it's absolutely incredible that so many different groups from different uh, spheres of influence are coming out in the lead up to Ungas in April, mm-hmm. which we talk about in c- constantly on the show, mm-hmm. um, you know, endorsing a more compassionate health and science-based drug policy. Like, there, we really haven't seen any major declarations from really influential thought leaders saying, like, 
the war on drugs has been working. Everyone, like, stop, <laughs> stop trying to change people's minds, you know? That's an excellent um, point. Yeah. And I think it's even more incredible that, you know, it's, it's awesome that these medical experts are coming out and endorsing not just Portugal-style decriminalization, but outright legalization. I mean, so often, mm-hmm. um, even though you would hope that doctors would be very, like, scientific-based and objective uh, assessors of evidence um, oftentimes are a very conservative institution um, mm-hmm. and have difficulty adapting to newer, more radical ideas. But this is great because it shows that the the mountain of evidence is so overwhelming that The Lancet, which you said, you know, is like the most prestigious medical journal in the UK, um, is also endorsing this idea. So I think it's great that we have leaders like some of our past guests, Dr. Malik Burnett and Dr. Dan mm-hmm. Morheim, really taking the lead on this type of reform and showing that, you know, this has medical backing, that this is health-based and rooted in science and not just um, some idea that a bunch of hippies mm-hmm. came up with. Yeah, exactly. And, and I really like your, your point, too, of just that on gas, if, if nothing else, it's really just brought a lot of our allies out of the woodwork. I mean, there's all these people right. that like just by having this discussion, even if the U.N. does just continue the same tired old policies, there's all these people now who are talking about this. And maybe we didn't know that a lot of the researchers involved here were on our side. And then... <clears throat> And having them uh, engaged in this debate is actually bringing them around. And I mean, and I and I don't think this is overstating the importance of this to say that this is pretty much like the medical equivalent of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, mm-hmm. uh, which some of our longtime guests uh, or listeners may remember Zara Snap, who was a guest on one of our earliest episodes. Um, she works with the Global Commission, and they're they're a bunch of former presidents and other world leaders that have endorsed these same sorts of policies. So that's like kind of the political angle. And this is basically the same thing on the medical angle, that it's 22 of of the world's top medical professionals. And so I think that this is uh, can't really be understated in ter- or overstated in terms of how important this is. Yeah, and like behind the scenes with uh, Tyler and Sarah, we've joked or chatted about this before, about mm-hmm. creating um, a, a decrim equivalent to marijuana majority, because that was kind of Tom Angel's mission in mm-hmm. forming that group, other than like providing himself a platform to speak from, I think, <laughs> um, was to highlight really how many thought leaders and influential um, individuals um, mm-hmm. We're supportive of marijuana reform, and I think it's almost time to have like a decrim majority or uh, mm-hmm. legal, uh, legalize all drugs majority because there really are so many um, policymakers and world global leaders um, coming out in favor of these policies now. Yeah, yeah, a project called Decrim Works that Tyler and I were working on a while ago. I think it is time to kind of brush the dust off of and uh, start working on some more just because this is just such a big part of the international discussion now. So moving on to our next story and taking us from a global perspective to a very individual, personal one. Um, My next story is about a disturbing trend recently uh, that has developed recently as Narcan, the opiate overdose reversal drug, does become more widely available. Um, So this trend apparently is of people filming drug overdoses um, and the ensuing rescue uh, and overdose reversal that involves Narcan. And of course, because this is the age of the internet, those videos are then often getting posted online, or in one case is released by the police department involved, and sometimes goes viral. So the specific story I'm sharing uh, today is called Life is Hell After Narcan, Heroin's Miracle Cure. And kind of the emphasis of this story is um, 
So on our show, when we talk about Narcan, we often talk about how important it is as a life-saving tool. Um, And we have discussed uh, to a limited extent in the past how overdose reversal is a very painful and uncomfortable process and not desirable for people to go through if they don't have to. Um, Symptoms are akin to immediately going through withdrawal. But we rarely ever talk about the long-term consequences to the person whose life has been saved. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of taken Mm -hmm. as you know, and a de facto good thing if you survive your overdose. Um, But oftentimes if the rescue was, or if the help was received uh, from a law enforcement officer, overdose reversal is immediately followed by arrest, criminal charges, and all of the other challenges that go with being someone struggling with addiction now being thrown into the criminal justice system. Um, And to further exacerbate that, that, you know, anguish and challenge, Um, Now with these viral videos online of these overdoses being posted everywhere and shared shared with thousands and thousands of strangers, evidence of someone's worst, most rock-bottom, shameful moments of their life, like their near-death experience where things could not Mm -hmm. have possibly gotten any worse for them, is forever preserved in the public mind and available for people to judge and comment on. So um, a lot of, you know, I think the point of this article was to show that this is someone's very personal experience and like what what responsibility does the media have in in sharing these stories um Mm -hmm. without context without necessarily going into you know a lot of the issues we talk about with addiction struggle and like why someone would get to the point of of being near a a heroin overdose you know because of other Mm -hmm. factors going on with their life yeah yeah, this is really difficult. I mean, I, I was certainly aware of the all of the side effects associated with Narcan. So, I mean, not side effects, of course, in the traditional sense in terms of uh, other effects that the drug itself has. But just as we were saying, you know, if you accidentally administer it to someone who's not overdosing, but as you were saying, essentially sending someone directly into withdrawal, which is an incredibly painful situation. But I hadn't, I hadn't seen these videos about uh, of you know, police resuscitating people, um, which is such a, it's a difficult issue as far as the privacy side of it goes. I mean, on one hand, we kind of have a right to know in terms of how our police are responding to these sort of things. And so, I mean, seeing police videos, whether it's uh, any sort of response, medical or or, or criminal or otherwise. um, But yeah, balancing that with the but the, the, the right sh- to privacy of these people. Right. The sharing of these moments, it, it seems to me, is clearly not a, an issue of police accountability. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. like people are filming these instances because they're worried that the police officers are going to misact or, or mm-hmm. they're, because they're worried about police brutality in these instances or police misconduct. Mm-hmm. But it really seems like it's just like a sensationalist, voyeuristic um, mm-hmm. tendency, you know, where, where people like, uh, I think I, I'm... Like, I'm such a bad millennial. I don't really watch a ton of Netflix, but, like, I feel like murder porn has become, like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kind of a recent trend in things people watch. And I feel like this is the next iteration of that. It's just, like, overdose porn. Like, people just want to see people at their worst moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. this isn't really a matter of um, sharing empathy for the person who overdosed or even, you know, celebrating the police officer's heroic efforts to save someone's life. It really seems yeah. like these vir- these videos are going viral to, to literally to mock the person mm-hmm. um, who mm-hmm. is going through the overdose. Um, yeah, that's terrible. I don't and I haven't seen these videos myself, but I read I read the story and I can't possibly imagine like how distraught you must be if you had just 
come out and survive something like that are still doing dealing with all the criminal charges involved and now know, know that all of your friends and family are able to see you mm-hmm. like as as you're about to die basically and were barely rescued mm-hmm. um one other minor point that this article kind of glossed over but which i found interesting because i've never heard of this before um is apparently some police officers are using narcan um in a somewhat irresponsible move in order to rouse addicts who are sleeping or nodding off in public so i had never heard Mm. of the use of this before and of course this is all anecdotal evidence from people the reporter interviewed like drug addicts at the a reporter in, interviewed as well as an addiction treatment specialist in North Philly who confirmed, you know, that his clients had reported these things. Um, apparently, like, people who are not overdosing are sometimes being pricked with Narcan by police officers who want them to just wake up and get out of, like, stop <sighs> loitering, get out of public mm-hmm. sight. Wow. Um, so that's some, definitely something to watch out for if you, um, you know, are in a place where law enforcement have Narcan on them as a, as a mm-hmm. tool. Yeah, I mean, that is all really important to think about because, yeah, oftentimes we do treat Narcan as a miracle drug. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it's, it truly is. Um, but it is important to, to keep in mind that there is can, there can be misuse of it and can be. Right. There's potential side. for abuse, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like with any other drug. And in this case, mm-hmm. it's from uh, not the user themselves, but from people who are using it not mm-hmm. for life saving purposes. Yeah. All right. And so for our final story this week, um, it's an update on one that we've been following closely. Um, And so Nicholas Cunningham, who is the owner of a company, but supposedly not really a company uh, called Kush Gods, which publicly gave marijuana to people in D.C. in exchange for, quote unquote, donations. Uh, he, He has pled guilty to two counts of selling marijuana to an undercover officer. So for those who didn't listen to our earlier episodes or just need a refresher, D.C. legalized marijuana back in 2014 by uh, popular vote, but only allows home growing and sharing without any sort of remuneration. So totally non-commercial system in contrast to other places that have a, a regulatory system where people can legally sell and purchase cannabis. And. So Cunningham, uh, he claimed that he was operating in compliance with this law by calling payments to him donations and uh, claiming that he was giving these things out for free, uh, but just with a suggested or actually in another interview, he even said a mandatory donation. Um, But so it was very obvious that it was, you know, a thinly veiled business that was in clear violation of D.C. law. Uh, And so he and one of his employees got arrested this past December uh, after months and months of operating this very openly. And uh, though pretty much everyone, including those who wrote and campaigned for D.C.'s legalization initiative, agreed that he was violating the law, it was still viewed as a little bit of a test case for the boundaries of D.C.'s non-commercial legalization. And in the end, he was sentenced to 180 days in jail, but the judge suspended his sentence and just put him on two years of probation, and then also ordered him to stop selling marijuana and to paint over uh, his vehicles, of which he had a fleet of luxury vehicles that were just kind of covered in these giant pictures of marijuana buds with the phone number and like the name of the app and stuff. So she ordered him to uh, paint over those as well. Um, so basically, this is it's really good to see this case wrapped up, um, especially um, turning out the way it did with him, you know, getting convicted but not going to jail um, just because they could really have thrown the book at him if they wanted to. He was operating very, very openly and to only end up throwing uh, convicting him of two counts uh they could have done a lot more probably could have put him away for a long time um but they did this in a 
in a more reasonable direction that they could have. Um, and also having the precedent is pretty good. But Rochelle, what are your uh, your thoughts on this? So um, while you were giving this update, I'm really glad I Googled Nicholas Cunningham. Uh, I was mm-hmm. trying to see like a picture of him because mm-hmm. I, my original comment was going to was going to be this sounds like a very white person consequence, like to have all mm-hmm. of the jail mm-hmm. time waived and to just be given probation instead. Um, mm-hmm. Seems like the kind of thing that you would be you would have to be in a privileged position to receive, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, for one yeah, of the typically. reasons. Right. But he's a- he actually is black. So mm-hmm. so I take that back. And I'm yeah. glad that, you know, that this did set um, that precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, one it of does the things- honestly also like fit a lot of the other stereotypes in terms of being like tattooed and stuff, too. And so it is good that he's getting leniency here because it is typ- the sort of person that typically would get the book thrown at them. Right. Based on his Mm -hmm. image and his background and his like blatantly illegal conduct. But I know Mm -hmm. that like within, you know, minority cannabis business owner circles, Mm -hmm. one of the big reasons that that people talk about for why um, black entrepreneurs aren't getting as involved in the can in the emerging cannabis industry is because there is still this remaining stigma that you're going to be the first target, even mm, though mm-hmm. marijuana is legal in your state. Um, you're far more likely to be arrested as a black cannabis business owner um, mm-hmm. than your white counterparts. So, so I guess um, you know in this case it, it turned out to be it what appears to be race neutral. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, which we, <laughs> maybe we can only see in a place like D.C. that actually is, you know, nearly 50 percent black. Right. Um, if the same thing happened in another state, um, I don't know if Maine passed legalization and then this happened with a governor like Paula Page, uh, like who knows what, what would have happened to this guy. Absolutely. But it does, like you said, um, kind of show kind of outline the limits of where the law is and shows that mm-hmm. this is being implemented in a um in a genuine right in Mm -hmm. a genuine way like we're not just letting people slip through the cracks and Mm -hmm. even though we should be giving the finger to congress because Mm -hmm. (laughs) because dc wants a legalized regulated and licensed system yeah and that is the really important point to make here too for like for our listeners who we don't talk about this like nonstop throughout the week with this doesn't mean that you know we're that dc's current law is enough like we obviously need a commercial system because it's insane that this sort of business isn't legal i mean maybe there's certain regulations that you'd put in place instead or maybe not having deliveries maybe only having storefronts whatever but it's still the sales should be legal just because if you're going to allow people to grow it in their own homes that discriminates against people who can't who like landlord won't let them who live in federal public housing um you need to have some sort of point of access for those people otherwise it's just a a a very discriminatory law at its core um although in dc uh one brilliant thing that i love that was happening earlier on in the legalization law is that there was a lot other tons of seed giveaways like people were mm-hmm. a, were actually yeah. donating to each other which i love because it fosters mm-hmm. a sense of community and this is really what you know yeah. sharing and caring is about mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that is a really great thing about it um so this brings us to our quick hits headlines um for our first headline this week rob ford the former mayor of toronto best known for having smoked crack cocaine while in office passed away last week um, he was also known for other wild partying behaviors, including public drunkenness and other belligerent um, 
uh, incidents during his time as mayor from 2010 to 2014. He withdrew his candidacy for re-election in 2014 after he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and lost his battle to that cancer um, this past Monday, March 21st. And for our next headline, the FDA announced on Tuesday that it's going to be requiring stronger warnings on prescription opioid packaging. And among these changes, the FDA is requiring a new boxed warning about the serious risks of misuse, abuse, addiction, overdose, and death. And finally, this past Monday as well, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case filed by Oklahoma and Nebraska against Colorado for its marijuana legalization. Um, This is a case we've reported on before, so the Supreme Court has decided not to hear the case. Two justices, Thomas and Alito, issued a dissent arguing in favor of hearing the case, but obviously they were outnumbered. Um, If you'd like to hear a more in-depth discussion on this decision, check out our friends at Marijuana Today. So now moving on to our weekly forecast. Um, The 11th Annual National Harm Reduction Conference in San Diego, California, isn't happening until November this year, but scholarships to attend the conference are due next Friday on April 1st. So if you are interested in going to that conference um, and would like some financial help to get there, uh, you need to submit your scholarship application by next Friday. So scholarships cover conference registration and shared lodging. You would still have to be responsible for your own meals and travel. And priority is given to applicants who are drug users, people living with HIV AIDS or Hep C, people of color, youth, sex workers, transgendered people, and gender non-conforming people um, as this is their target communities. So these are primarily need-based scholarships for people who would not be able to attend without financial assistance. So if you're interested in applying, you can go to the URL harmreduction.org conference scholarship or check out the link on our website. And also next month, uh, April 17 to 18, there's going to be a conference in New York City called the Cannabis Science and Policy Summit. And it's produced by Botech, which is a consulting firm that helps set up Washington State's adult use marijuana market. And it's going to be featuring a range of supporters, opponents, and outside observers of marijuana reform, from scientists to business people to journalists. And actually, four uh, past guests that we've had on the show, uh, Chris Crane, Adam Orens, Eric Sterling, and Dan Riffle, are among the speakers at this conference. And it does overlap a bit with the SSDP conference, unfortunately, which we've talked a lot about. But if you're either not attending SSDP, or want to catch the second half of this conference after SSDP wraps up that Sunday, uh, we definitely encourage you to check it out. So that's all for this week's news and forecast. As always, we have our eyes and ears out for the biggest drug policy news every week, but there's so much going on that we might not catch it all. So if you see an interesting story um, or an event or hearing coming up that you'd like us to report on, please give us a shout out on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, or send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. It's time for the Drug of the Month, where we give an overview and dive into the science, history, and current events for a different drug each month. For March 2016, that drug is fencyclidine, more commonly known as PCP. So for this, our last installment, I'll be talking about some recent trends around this almost universally vilified drug. As Rochelle explained in the history section last week, PCP was one of the major focuses of the drug hysteria of the 1970s and 80s with a few high-profile cases of gruesome suicides and murders that gave it a reputation for being able to turn normal people into homicidal maniacs or even cannibals, who also had super strength and couldn't feel any pain. 
But as anyone following the drug war knows, these stories were highly exaggerated, and while PCP was involved, it was not the cause of these events. Just like all the trumped-up claims of people committing atrocities while high on marijuana that were peddled during the era of reefer madness, and like we've seen more recently with drugs like bath salts. Of course, there is a small kernel of truth to this perception, as PCP is an anesthetic, so it does make people much less sensitive to pain. It's also dissociative and can cause people to behave erratically or have delusions of grandeur. But by definition, people cannot have superhuman strength, and PCP has not been shown to actually increase the strength of people who use it. This idea was largely the result of fear-mongering that tried to make out drug users as a violent, unpredictable threat that needed to be stopped, which of course was also strongly related to race and casting black men as a menace to society. An early example of this sort of thinking about PCP in pop culture was in the original Terminator movie, where there's a scene in which Arnold Schwarzenegger survives a shotgun blast to the chest. Police responding to the scene said the only possible explanation was that he was on PCP. Of course, this is ridiculous, but the idea of people being impervious to bullets, tasers, or other kinds of weapons was, and still kind of is, a common and very incorrect belief about PCP. The use of fencyclidine was also pretty common in the 70s, but has declined rapidly since then. In surveys, the number of high school students admitting to having tried PCP at least once was 13% in 1979, but plummeted to less than 3% in 1990. In 2010, according to Monitoring the Future, that number dropped even further to only 1.8%, so it's pretty clear that PCP's moment in the spotlight is over. But this rarity of PCP use, combined with the perception of it giving people superhuman strength and making them behave erratically, has turned it kind of from a serious national concern into more of a joke. Since it is often used with marijuana, it's also a convenient plot device for people to accidentally consume it and have some crazy things happen to them. For example, in the movie Walk Hard, the main character becomes addicted to a wide variety of drugs after achieving fame and success as a musician. His wife gets worried about him and threatens to leave him if he doesn't get sober. He agrees to stop using drugs, hugs her, and sneakily puts some PCP in his mouth. She notices it, he denies it, and then he runs out of the room, strips down to his underwear, and runs around the city flipping over cars, throwing mailboxes through windows, and climbing up buildings. It's a little unclear whether this was poking fun at what people used to think PCP could do, or if it was just going along with those assumptions in order to get some cheap laughs. Another instance of PCP in pop culture was in the sketch comedy show Whitest Kids You Know, in a skit called Gallon of PCP. In it, two men who knew each other in high school run into each other in a park, one of them carrying a big jug that just says PCP on it. During the conversation, it's revealed that the man's wife died earlier that day because he left her with his drug dealer as collateral when he went to go get some money at the ATM and then forgot about her because he was high on PCP. He seems totally fine with the situation and then goes to proceed to pick up his kids at school. One other example of PCP in the media was in the Comedy Central show Workaholics. In an episode where Adam is trying to camp out for the release of a new zombie video game but accidentally gets in line at a methadone clinic instead, he asks some people in line if they had any marijuana to sell him, and he goes back to, around back to make a deal and smoke some of it. After he smokes some, they tell him that it's actually PCP and then try to rob him, but he freaks out and thinks that they're zombies, imagining that he's in the video game that he was trying to buy. And while fencyclidine seems to be the subject of jokes rather than headlines in recent years, it does still come up in the media from time to time. The prime example is the case of Aaron Hernandez, the former NFL player who was convicted of murder in 2015. During the proceedings, it came out that he was a frequent PCP user, and the defense actually brought in experts in order to testify about its effects and convince the jury that the drug caused him to commit this crime, essentially pleading insanity. 
It didn't work as the murder was clearly premeditated and not a random act of violence, and the prosecution even brought in their own experts to counter this and testify that the link between PCP and violence is actually not borne out by research and is instead just an incorrect stereotype. The court refused to place the blame on PCP and sentenced Hernandez to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So that's it for Fencyclidine, March 2016th Drug of the Month. We'll be back next week with an introduction for the new Drug of the Month for April. And now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we're going to be discussing youth drug education with Dr. Vilmarie Fraguada Narlock, a clinical psychologist. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. And so since you're on SSDP's board of directors, many of our SSDP or listeners probably already know who you are since they may have voted for you in some of the past elections. But for those of you who, for those of our listeners that, that don't know you yet, could you tell us a little bit about how you originally got involved in drug policy and, and what you do now? Uh, sure, sure. So I originally got involved in drug policy stuff in 2009 when I started the PsyD program at Roosevelt University. Um, and actually, when I was um, interviewing for, um, for the school there, I was talking to one of the professors about my interest in, in youth and drug use. And he mentioned that there was this institute at Roosevelt that um, was doing some sort of research on that. And you should meet Kathy Kate Willis, and, mm. uh, who actually happens to be the, um, the advisor for Roosevelt University's chapter of SSDP, and she's the executive director of the Illinois Consortium on Drug Policy. So once I um, started school at Roosevelt, I um, got in touch with her, and I started my research assistant position with her. And um, she was like, hey, if you're going to work here, you're going to be an SSDP. So that's kind of how, <laughs> how that started, and, it, and the rest is uh, wonderful history. So, uh, so now I am working as a, a psychologist at an agency um, here in Illinois, and I'm still involved with SSDP. Um, as you know, I was on the board of directors, and I'm doing some work with them to develop a peer education program, which we'll be talking about. Um, so we have to thank Kathy Kane Willis, first of all, to get for getting you involved in SSDP. And you mentioned doing a research assistantship from her. And I think the resulting dissertation from uh, your time doing that research was titled What Youth Want, Developing a Drug Education Curriculum uh, Based on Youth Guidance and Evidence-Based Principles. Can you tell us a little bit about this dissertation and the research that went into it? Sure, sure. So um, when I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, I wanted to somehow incorporate uh, drug policy in my work with ICDP. And at the time that I was kind of coming up with topic ideas, uh, Kathy and Stephanie, who was our project manager uh, at the time, uh, brought up this uh, data that they had collected previously. And actually, um, I have to give a shout out to Jenny Janicek Crane, who is also an SSDP mm. alum, and she was also mm -hmm. uh, part of this original work that they did, um, which was essentially um, conducting focus groups in uh, communities in Indiana, uh, and basically asking them about their uh, drug education experiences. So that's sort of where it all started, and I kind of 
took it uh, a little bit farther to compare what uh, the youth wanted with what is considered essentially best practice uh, in drug education now um, and coming up with sort of what the key categories were um, that students were talking about in comparison to um, what the best practices are from like the, the smart research people. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so that's, yeah, and so the, oh, go ahead, Sam. Oh, I was just going to ask. And so this is focused very much at a, a uh, within high schoolers or within all sorts of age ranges in the K through 12 area. So the, the participants were, uh, youth age 18 to 22. So, uh, people that oh, okay. recently, so college age. Yeah, mm -hmm. recently graduated from high school and had been participating in some sort of uh, drug education in their high school program. And so I think what's really funny about your research title is what youth want, because obviously a lot of the youth oriented campaigns we've seen um, around drug e education or particularly drug use prevention um, haven't really taken into account like how to effectively communicate with youth or at least that's our perspective so what did you find in your research like what do youth want and how is that different from what the the brainy academics think that we should be employing as best practices and also it's just lots of emojis right yeah <laughs> and as a follow-up I'd be really interested in knowing like how did the academics develop best practices if not based on you know um finding out how to best communicate with youth. So uh, I, I will say that I just had to kind of point out that I was at a conference in Chicago for the Chicago Alcohol Harm Reduction uh, Coalition a few years ago, and we were talking about how to um, sort of connect with college students. And, um, and I was mentioning how some of the programming that they were utilizing was stuff that students didn't really like or they weren't really getting a whole lot out of. Um, and that was just through my conversations with, you know, SSD peers and one of the, uh, administrators, one of the college sort of administrators was saying, oh, they don't know what they want, uh, or they don't know what's good for them. Something along those lines. It's like, I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, so that kind of fueled my, uh, my fire a little bit for this, uh, project. Um, and actually what I noticed that was really interesting, at least I found really interesting, was a lot of the things that the youth were saying that they wanted, um, you know, some of the more uh, technical things were, were actually really aligned with what is considered best practice. So these are students that, you know, don't really know anything about how these programs are developed, but they know that, um, you know, their teachers, for example, should maybe know a little bit about drugs if they're going to be talking to them about about that. Um, and they, mm -hmm. they believe that um, drug education should start early and continue on through, you know, throughout high school, um, starting as, as early as elementary school. Like as opposed as opposed to the model we have now where you kind of parachute in one or two drug education classes a couple times a year or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious about how exactly, what some of these best practices are that you ended up uh, concluding through your research and exactly how they kind of contrast with some of, I don't know if we would call them best practices, but just some of the common practices that are being engaged with right now. And especially how this relates to the legality of these drugs. Because I remember back when I was in uh, high school that essentially the D.A.R.E. program was 
okay, drug abuse is defined as using any legal drug too much to in a way that it harms your uh, relationships and your ability to conduct a normal life, uh, kind of the standard model of drug abuse, or the use of any illegal drug. And that was kind of where it was left. And um, I'm curious about how how you think some of the best practices should be for skirt or addressing that uh, kind of conflict between uh, the legal drugs like cough syrup, nitrous, that kind of thing, ones that are age limited, like alcohol and tobacco, marijuana in some places, and illegal ones like, say, heroin and cocaine and that sort of thing. Oh, sure. Uh, so I-, I guess one of the things that, that we know from the the research of, of current drug education is that they don't really, they don't always touch on those things. Um, mm-hmm. Most programs are going to talk about alcohol, cigarettes, and other drugs. Um, and if they talk about anything else, it's just sort of brief. Um, and so that's one of the problems is that it's not comprehensive um, to what the youth are actually seeing people using and what's actually uh being uh, experimented with um, or used in their communities. So that's definitely an issue that um, needs to be addressed is that uh, the programming really needs to target what the youth are um, being exposed to. So, and that, you know, regardless of whether that's legal or illegal um, and Mm -hmm. and being able to talk about um, both of those things. I think it's important to, for, for them to understand the differences as far as the legality, because, uh, you know, that that's important for them to know. Um, and, and how that compares to the actual risk or, um, severity of problems that one might experience from using a particular, uh, substance. So what I find um, troubling here is that not only is the drug education that students are currently receiving, like in many ways ineffective and inadequate, but it seems like there's such a fear around honest, honest discussion with young people about drug use and, uh, you know, smart drug use, if that's what's going to happen, that we that based on what you're telling us, it that we're not even really addressing a lot of these substances that youth can encounter. Like, it's just like um, not only is what education they are receiving, you know, inadequate, but they aren't even hearing about the full range of substances they might encounter in real life and how to, like, that those even exist. Yeah. Um, So I kind of want to back up for a second and talk again and um, go back to, like, how were traditional or current, quote unquote, best practices developed um, in contrast to what you found with what youth want to hear? And how did you do your research to find out what youth want? Like, was it a matter of just going into the field and interviewing a whole bunch of uh, young people in that age range that you discussed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the development of, of the, the different programs varies. I mean, I think they they take into account um, the, the more commonly used drugs or what they think are the more commonly used drugs. So again, the alcohol, tobacco, um, and um, things like that. And and as far as, I think there are some that will try to incorporate um, youth in the development, especially newer ones that are being developed. Um, but for the most part, it's a bunch of quote unquote experts um, that are putting together um, these programmings based, based on what they think um, young people are gonna be, um, what people are gonna wanna see. So a lot of times that's where you see 
programming that just seems really off base and really sort of immature that tends to almost top down to young people or are, you know, just kind of not really getting at the things that are important to them. Um, and so then contrast that with what the young people are saying that they want is just like, don't just be real, be upfront with what exists and, and be honest with the information because we're already seeing this stuff. And if you're telling us something that we're not seeing, um, it can be really discrediting to um, a teacher or someone who's presenting that information to them. So, um, and when it comes to how they determine what is best practice, that's a really problematic um, thing right now because it's really based on whoever decides what these best practices are. There's not a whole lot of, um, like trial and error it's mostly like just based on academic research and and saying this sounds the best yeah yeah and <laughs> yeah, the different organizations or agencies that are um determining what it consists of best practice they sort of have their own um ideas of what fits into those categories what what would be considered best practice so um, something that is considered best practice on it for one organization might be considered really bad for another organization just because the, the, um, those different points don't really match up. Uh, so that's really, there's not really a lot of consistency with um, quote unquote best practice lists or best practice, um, uh, I guess, determination. And so speaking of some of these best practices, and, and you also touched on the idea of these sorts of drug education, of being very immature and, and talking down to young people, I was hoping we could kind of, uh, and, and this is a little different since it's more mass education campaigns than a classroom sort of environment, but there have been a lot of campaigns that we've talked about recently on the show, and uh, I was hoping to get your, your input on some of these. Skewer them is more accurate. <laughs> Yeah, skewer, I think that would be uh, an accurate description. <laughs> and so I was hoping you could kind of uh, skewer these with us or make some recommendations about what they could have improved. And, and so, I mean, if we could just run through a couple of them, starting with the Australia's stoner sloth. Um, so I, 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 you, is it safe to assume that you've seen this one? Yes, I've seen that one. Yeah, so <laughs> we've addressed it on previous episodes, so our, our listeners probably know uh, what Rochelle and I think, but what, what were your thoughts on the Stoner Sloth campaign? I mean, I, I think I, I tend to agree with with your uh, uh, thoughts about it. Uh, and it's highly entertaining, uh, but I, I can't imagine that that's going to actually have much of an effect on mm -hmm. whether or not someone <laughs> uses a substance. Uh, and again, I think it, it does sort of make light of of the issue um, when, you know, yeah, maybe I mean, it's like, is the problem that the stoner sloth was too cuddly and cute and that people could like kind of identify with it or like should yeah. they have used an uglier animal or is it the fact that you're comparing, you know, young people on substances to these like dopey animals to begin with? I think it's sort of all of the above. I mean, it, it's really just like you're, you're disrespecting the intelligence of of young people. If you really want to get them to not use a substance, um, using a, a cuddly creature um, as like a mascot isn't necessarily a little <laughs> off base, right? So mm -hmm. um, again, really entertaining. So I appreciate that aspect of it, but uh, I, I can't imagine that it's actually going to have any sort of 
um, effect that they were going for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like they were trying to be very hip and relatable with it, with it making something entertaining, which, I mean, it was definitely entertaining, but just probably not in the the sense that they were hoping for. And so to take a, the kind of opposite approach was another campaign in Colorado that was very early after uh, Amendment 64 passed there. And that was the Don't Be a Lab Rat campaign in which they put these huge cages out in public spaces with the idea of uh, saying that there I think the premise was that there hasn't been enough research on marijuana's health effects. And so don't be a lab rat by smoking marijuana while we, we don't understand it or something like that. And so, um, but of course, it then also had the uh, optics of these giant cages when we're talking about marijuana. And uh, I was wondering what you think about this much more of a, probably a scare tactic than than the sloth was. Yeah, yeah, definitely more along the lines of of scare tactics, which we know uh, also are ineffective um, based on research. Um, They don't work. Uh, Also, just the idea of cages is really um, unpleasant. But I, I, I do, I mean, I think I have to give them a little bit of credit for trying to, to be a little bit more, um, I guess, respectful of the intelligence of youth in, in, a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, yeah, they do have a point that there isn't as much research about this as maybe some people would like. Um, and, and so I think they were kind of, they're getting a little bit closer. Um, but again, these like grand gesture sort of um, scare tactic campaigns have never really been shown to work. So, um, and I I kind of think with this particular campaign, the really detrimental part of the optics of the big cages that they were putting out in public is that a huge part of the reason you know many people are involved in ending marijuana prohibition is to and the disproportionate incarceration of like people of color. So to put these big cages out there and say, oh, you know, if you use marijuana, we're gonna lock you up. It's kind of discounting the experience of a lot of a lot of people who, you know, maybe not in Colorado so much because this is not a super diverse state, but it's like, oh, using marijuana isn't just like potentially making you a lab rat, but like for a lot of people, it means a tiny amount of marijuana could get them can get them put in jail. And that's why we're trying to end marijuana prohibition and they're kind of like bringing that that image back to like scare (laughs) um definitely brings that up too like like okay so this is what you're saying is actually happening yeah we're aware of that so (laughs) right uh demonstrate that because that's a bad thing we don't want that yeah, and as far as ineffective messaging goes and talking down to youth, I don't think any campaign that we've discussed on the show really beats the emoji billboards that, um, uh, what is it, Campaign for a Drug-Free America, um, um, you know, funded and had put up. Um, and so these are, for listeners who may not be familiar, these are like giant billboards, like the kind you see on highways and stuff, but written completely in emojis. Um, we kind of had, I had, during that episode, I had Sam try and guess what one of the emoji messages said, (laughs) um, and, you know, doing kind of my own research on social media, nobody could even figure out what the message was. Um. We're too old. Maybe we are too old. Is that the problem, uh, Dr. Narlock? That might be it, but I, I tried really hard to figure it out, and I, like, there was, like, a, a, like, muscles, I don't know, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) If I have to think that long 
to understand what a billboard is saying, it is that alone is ineffective. I think the idea of a billboard is supposed to be a quick thing, right? Quick messaging that's not mm -hmm. that's not causing accidents while people stare at it and try to decipher the code. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, does that does that signal in any way to young people though that this is a message that is aimed at them? Like, is it effective and saying like we understand your language and we know what you're going through, or does it really just come off? as it did for us as kind of a, like an attempt at being cool and hip, but really missing the mark. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly what it is. And yeah, young people see right through that, um, that this, these are, you know, people that are trying to speak our language and doing so really poorly, like really badly. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, we don't even talk like that, so you know, like that's kind of what I'm, what I've been hearing, um, right? And I mean, like nobody has better like BS detectors than like a bunch of teenagers who know right. that you're trying to get them to stop doing like the behavior that they want. Like, exactly. I, I can't imagine a quicker way to turn someone off your messaging than to um, <laughs> exactly. condescend to them like that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a really important thing, though, in, in talking about these campaigns, and I don't not all of them were uh, funded by marijuana tax dollars. But that is a really growing thing now is that as these states legalize marijuana and have this huge amount of tax revenue coming in, a lot of the time it's either specifically earmarked for some kind of drug education campaign often aimed at youth. Um, and even if it's not explicitly targeted, then the government ends up spending a lot more on this anyway. Um, and so I was wondering if you could maybe let's pretend for a second that you were the person who was in charge of all of these marijuana tax dollars and how they would actually be spent on uh, youth drug education. What would actually be an effective way that to spend this money in order to reach the goal of, of not having young people be using marijuana underage while also you know, not just completely turning them off by either condescending to them or going the, the, creating these other weird publicity stunts that actually don't really make any sense yeah I think um, that money really could be beneficially used um, in developing new uh, drug education programming that does take into consideration realistically what youth want by bringing them to the table and having them share their experiences and the things that they need to know in order to uh, be safe or to help their friends or family members that might be using drugs problematically. Um, and to include, you know, just general harm reduction, um, as well as comprehensive fact-based information um, about the drugs that they're um, being exposed to in their communities. That's how I would spend it. And so you're a clinical psychologist by trade. Is Are, are the vast majority of people who are developing um, these drug education programs or telling the people who put these programs together also clinical psychologists? And how does that um, inform the research you do into drug education? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as um, people that develop programs, I think it's a variety. I think you see a lot of Psychologists, you see a lot of uh, like school psychologists, uh, educators, um, you know, social workers, uh, you know, administrators, um, nurses, you know, so they do tend to bring in a variety of people um, to inform development. As far as how I in, uh, 
sort of bring that into my work. Um, part of being a psychologist is having an understanding of how people change and um, in, in what ways you can sort of foster that and empower people to, to make positive changes. Um, and for, for me, a lot of that has to do with being a collaborator instead of someone who's just telling somebody what to do, um, which doesn't tend to be all that effective in getting someone to change. So um, that's really one of the reasons why I think it makes all of the sense and is really important to, to bring uh, young people who will be the targets of this kind of messaging and programming to the table um, because we need to know what's important for them and what they need to know um, to help them be safe essentially and maybe make uh, safer and healthier choices. Great. And, and so, and also, not only are you trying to bring young people to the table here in order to get their buy-in and these sorts of campaigns, but an awesome thing about you is that you're also now teaching the next generation of people who are going to be doing this education. Because, as we mentioned, you also teach a course on uh, on substance abuse that are you're training people who are going to be clinical psychologists themselves, and. Um, and also, we need to point out, as for people who may have uh, been noticing the code word in some of our past uh, episodes, is that students in your course actually get extra credit for listening to the podcast. So thank you so much for that, for the uh, just to start with. And, um, and so thank you. And also, since we have been kind of just sprinkling the code word out throughout our episodes so far, um, but since you're on this one, uh, I thought we, it would be nice to give you the opportunity to make up your own code word this week if you'd like to. I would love to. I would love to. So, uh, well, first of all, it's um, I'm teaching. The students that I'm teaching are um, going are training to be drug and alcohol counselors. Uh, so, and I'm teaching two courses. There's an integrated treatment strategies course and a um, co-occurring disorders course. Um, and so, if you happen to be listening, students. The code word is unicorn. Um, Fun. Yes. <laughs> so, so yes, I, I'm working on, on teaching these students, and I really try to um, sort of interweave harm reduction into all of my lessons um, with them so they have a, a good understanding of, of that when they get into the field and, and an understanding of what sort of the – the trajectory of drug and alcohol treatment um, or drug treatment, I should say, um, is going to be uh, and that integration of both mental health and, and substance use treatment is really important um, and looking to be the most effective way. Our traditional treatment models tend to separate um, substance use disorders and mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to actually addressing those things. Um, and that has shown to be somewhat problematic, uh, and we're working on trying to bring the two together a little bit more. So, that's what I'm teaching these folks. <laughs> so, so Sam mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you are uh, one of the directors of the, board, of the International Board of Directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And one of the advantages that we alumni and students have uh, benefiting from you serving on our board of directors is that you can bring your research and the things that you've learned um, to come and teach us a little bit more about how to be effective um, 
you know, advocates and educators also. So I know you're working with uh, Francis Fu, one of the outreach coordinators, on a peer education program for SSDP. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, thank you for, for bringing that up. I'm, I'm really excited. So we're actually going to be officially um, launching this at the um, SSDP International Conference in April. Um, oh, awesome. So um, that we will be presenting that to, to students. But essentially uh, what the pro program is, is we uh, were noticing that a lot of students were um, wanting to talk to their college communities about um, drugs. Uh, a lot of times their own uh, college administrators or officials um, will sort of have attempts at uh, teaching or doing some sort of prevention programming um, and that usually that tends to fall flat or isn't all that um, effective or not really all that well received uh, by the students. Mm -hmm. And so what a lot of students have started doing um, was creating these uh, Just Say No, uh, K-N-O-W, um, presentations for um, their peers. And this kind of started out at, at uh, Virginia Commonwealth uh, University um, and our friend Devin Tackles and, and friends who um, initially created these, these Just Say No programming and, and it sort of spread throughout the SSDP um, network. And so we're essentially taking that and like, putting it on steroids and um, and being able to train, more effectively train peer educators, SSD peers to become peer educators um, to deliver both just say no um, types of lessons, but also lessons on the history of, of drug policy, uh, history of uh, drug education, um, and a lot of other great things. I don't wanna to give too much away, but, uh, but it's gonna be a really great opportunity for students to, uh, one, actually help us develop uh, the program so their voices are needed and will be heard mm -hmm. um, for sort of this first pilot phase and, um, and then become, you know, become sort of trained to be peer educators um, themselves. So we're really, really excited and um, can't wait to show this to everybody. Yeah, I can't wait really to hear great. more about it at the conference in April also. Yeah, I didn't realize it was being unveiled then, so I'm really looking forward to learning about it in more depth and maybe giving it a little bit of feedback, even though I'm a couple years out of college now. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is uh, we're running up on our time for this episode, and it's been really great talking with you and learning about uh, everything that you have to say about youth drug education programs. And so, as you may know, we do also always wrap up our discussions with a call to action, since while educating people is really important, it's kind of useless if you're not then turning that knowledge into actual change to improve your communities. And so if you could have listeners do something right now uh, what would you ask them to do? Uh, yeah, I guess a few things. Uh, one, for the SSD peers that are listening that plan on coming to the conference, um, definitely come check out uh, Lana and Francis's presentation so you can hear all about our peer education program. Um, and if you're not an SSD peer, um, I would encourage you to reach out to um, your school districts and school boards or uh, school administrators about uh, the kind of messaging and drug education that students are receiving in your area and your communities um, and asking them for uh, more comprehensive drug education 
um, and sort of shaking, shaking that up a little bit. Um, and uh, for those people that are in my classes, um, you, again, as, as uh, Sam and Rochelle mentioned, you do get extra credit for listening. Um, and uh, all you'd need is a little reaction paper and remember the code word. <laughs> Which, again, for people in Dr. Narlock's class is unicorn. Um, so we're very excited about hearing more about this SSDP peer education program uh, for those of us lucky enough to be going to the conference in April. Um, thank you so much for joining us and coming on to speak with us today uh, about all of your research in youth drug education. Again, this has been Dr. Vilmarie Fraguada Narlock. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to episode 37 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Dr. Vilmarie Narlock once again for joining us for the discussion. We've got an announcement this week that's actually a little bit belated. We've created a new section on our website where we've taken the four segments of each drug of the month and combined them into complete tracks. So the individual five-minute segments are now one big 20-minute track about each individual drug. We thought this would be a really cool way for people interested in each drug to get the overview, science, history, and trends all at once. So head on over to thisweekindrugs.org slash drugs to find these compilations, or you can just click on drugs at the top uh, bar of our website. We'd also like to thank our friend Chris Lotlicker, who's the host of the podcast Marijuana Today, which you should definitely check out, for suggesting this to us and even announcing it on his podcast before we did. So thanks again, Chris. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests and news stories and so much more. And again, if you're listening to this on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a review because it'll really help other people discover us. And that's all for episode 37, so please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Tree by Rachel Ruinwurst. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a tree. Nobody bother me. Nobody, nobody.
and no one will bother me.